This is Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. Today I'm going to talk about a concept, an idea that we've been fleshing out and developing here for a number of years at the Center for Bioregional Living. And that concept is watershed-based economies. How can we create one? What does it look like? Starting with, of course, the rudimentary concept of what is a watershed, which watershed are we talking about? For us, geographically, we're talking about the Rondout River watershed, which is a sub-watershed of the Hudson Valley drainage basin, which is another term for a watershed. Some permaculture designers call it a basin of relations which is a good way to think of why we focus on that as a framework to design within. It has to do with geography, geology, and hydrology. These are all common throughout a watershed. They share similar geologic characteristics. They are a pattern of geography that is defined by a topographic variable that's empirically measurable, which are the ridge lines of the highest points in the land that when rain falls upon them, drain into that body of water. So all of the land upon which it, when rain falls, that ends up in the Hudson River is part of the Hudson Valley watershed. Now, watershed-based planning is something that I've been particularly keen on for quite some years as a child growing up we're going to go back that far. As a child growing up in Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania to be exact, in the drainage basin of the East Brandywine River, there is also a West branch of the Brandywine River, which has quite a history of conservation work done in that drainage basin, in that watershed, by the Brandywine Conservation, uh, I think they're called the Brandywine Conservation organization or the Brandywine Conservation Group. In any case, there's also another one that's a multi-million dollar large land trust firm that does consultation to townships on conservation-based development models, and they are called the Natural Lands Trust. Both of these organizations, in fact, a close friend and colleague of mine, David Harper, worked for the Brandywine Conservancy and the Natural Lands Trust. He and I at present are involved in the application process for a 501c3 to begin what we are calling the Permaculture Living Land Trust. Now that's a little background for you, and I grew up in this area that had all this conservation work happening and all these organizations, and I didn't quite realize when I was there just how unique that was to that part of the country. And now that I'm in Ulster County in New York State, I'm in a place where there's certainly a active presence in the form of land trusts and conservation groups, but not nearly as steeped and thoroughly covered in its territory by them as southeastern Pennsylvania, Chester County, Bucks County, uh, Delaware County, in contrast to, say, Ulster County, certainly Duchess on the other side of the Hudson, 
traveling east towards our border with Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, Dutchess certainly has a, a more robust land trust and conservation group, and a lot of this has to do with the way that these organizations do often follow where the money is. In other words, where we find a large percentage of the land owned by wealthier property owners with larger estates, we often see a preponderance, a large amount, of these land trusts and conservation groups because often it helps with the tax realities for larger estates to put much of them under conservation easements, and that's a beneficial role that these play financially and in terms of the long-term equity and inheritance of future generations. And we have to give a great deal of acknowledgement to the conservation and land trust movement in this country in the last 30 plus years for having really brought about the awareness that protecting intact vestiges of healthy ecologies is the first step to creating a sustainable community and a thriving ecological economy becoming a potential. We need the groundwork of healing the wounds that have been made and protecting the healthy places that are still around. And this is one of the foundational concepts that Bill Mullison lays out early on in permaculture. And we have to recognize that permaculture is not the only school of thought that has relevant knowledge sets. It needs to be informed and networking with the conservation and land trust movement, especially as permaculture practitioners, it's a tough one to say, especially as permaculture practitioners in the Northeastern Corridor, where most of the forest ecology is owned by private property owners, we will see that the main advocate for forest health, ecological health, and watershed health is land protection and conservation work. And then the next layer that I'm going to talk about that is largely lacking within these organizations, as important and essential as their work is, they aren't doing everything that needs to be done, and that's appropriate. We're now at a place where new organizations that are led by community groups that are locally organized around a plan. That plan is a plan for economic development that's based on a new economy, an economy that is shaped and adapted to the landscape where the people live who are participating in it. And what I mean by that is that we need to design an economy that is land-based, ecologically well-suited to the places where we are going to be harvesting renewable goods to produce energy, to produce food, to process fuel, and to really make waste into a resource by source-separating it and creating micro-enterprises that are closed-loop and don't release their effluence into the surrounding environment, but actually treat them on site and get a yield from them. So creating closed-loop micro-enterprises, ecologically renewable economic systems, this is what I call watershed-based model of economic development. And the reason we need to get so elaborate in our thinking about this is so that we can really articulate a comprehensive vision for a direction to turn what at present 
is a culture that largely, in my experience, when I go to, for instance, meetings about water quality in the Rondout River Valley that are put together by River Keepers, a very important and proactive organization in organizing communities in this region to talk more about the water quality of all of the rivers that drain into the Hudson and the Hudson itself. So looking at the Wallkill and the Esopus and the Rondout and the Hudson. <clears throat> in this meeting that I went to recently that was a annual update on their findings about this watershed, the Rondout in particular, really focused a lot on fecal coliform, E. coli, and bacteria loads, and had no offering of real solutions that were at all meaningful or substantive in their nature. The solutions that were offered were entirely geared towards what I call mitigation strategies. So can we make the pollution load less bad? Can we limit how much of it is getting into the Rondout through different measures that aren't at all getting a yield or harvesting the income that is generated by these nutrient loads? In permaculture, we look at things like household waste streams that are not coming from an industrial facility but are simply what I like to call good old poop and pee and household cleaners and soaps. Those are very easily digestible plant foods and foods for microbial life. And so one of the ideas that I put forth after this meeting had gone on for almost two plus hours and it was winding down and they were asking for ideas from the floor I started talking about one of the technologies that is key to the retrofit of the economy to become localized and way less vulnerably dependent upon this globalized, long-distance transportation, import-export, funny money, flim-flam show that at present dominates our marketplace and our lives. That, my friends, is a dismal state of affair that we are very interested in avidly working towards changing with our educational programs, with our research and development around bioregional alternatives that are watershed-based. And what I mean by watershed-based is that these solutions, these ideas, and the particular form that they will take is unique to the Hudson Valley watershed, and even further attuned and adapted to the sub-watershed basins that comprise that larger watershed, which is something like 24,000 miles of land area in total when you look at how much land, when rain falls upon it, ends up in the Hudson. So today, what I'm talking about is a solution set that is essential to continuing the important work of advocacy groups like river keepers, conservation groups, and land trusts. Because these organizations, well, their work is fundamental 
to creating the base upon which we can grow a ecological, regionally-based economy, they aren't talking about the need for that. And so as a result, when you go to meetings about the concerns that they are talking about, which are very valid, like fecal coliform, E. coli, fragmented ecologies, they largely lack a really forward-thinking conversation about how do we prevent these problems that right now seem to be so widespread throughout our landscapes, like failing septic tanks that are polluting all the rivers and small communities that have non-compliance with their own onboard little sewage treatment facilities. Do we just tell people that they're bad actors and fine them and then force them to implement more industrial systems that give no yield and need to be cleaned and pumped and landfilled often? Or at best, maybe land applied and hopefully not municipal sludge combined, but just separate from the household taken right to a field, which is highly unlikely. In other words, typically when a septic tank is pumped, it's taken to a municipal sewage treatment plant where it's combined with all of that sludge that's created at the sewage treatment facility. And that sludge is toxic waste because that sludge is created from stormwater drains, the dry cleaner, the car wash, and good old household poop, pee, and cleaners. And you'll see why this is why I say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Municipal sludge is hazardous waste and needs to be treated as such. However, when we nip that problem in the bud and actually source separate nutrient loads, we have now a tenable resource. In other words, that is free from heavy metals, arsenic, cadmium, PCBs, all of which are in municipal sludge. None of that is going to be in household septic tanks. So when we pump a septic tank, if we took it to a mixing station that only took sludge from household facilities, no industrial facilities, then we could safely land apply that. But we'd still be missing yield because in China, and I've been studying this because I'm very keen on how do we transition the infrastructure to become something that doesn't create problems that ultimately we can only mitigate, but where we actually take some of these key problems of the Northeastern Corridor, like fecal coliform, E. coli, enterococcus, overall high bacteria counts throughout our waterways, and the safety hazards that it causes for the health of people who swim in them. How do we solve that problem? By other ways than Band-Aid measures and punitive fining systems to bring people into compliance? Are there technologies, perhaps, and methodologies that could be adopted here that will transform that problem into something that no longer exists and that at some point in the future we'll look back and say, wasn't that funny how we didn't understand that we could have been using sewage to actually create fuel for cooking our food, and heating our water, and powering our homes. Here's what I'm talking about. In China, 
there are 30,000 biogas units that are powering 40 million homes. A biogas unit is basically a septic tank that is designed to hold on to the methane that is generated from your septic tank, as it is right now, without any designing variables to be able to capture that methane. It releases it into the atmosphere, which one of the town supervisors that was at the Riverkeepers meeting was adding to the problem that failing septics contribute to climate change because of this methane that's released from their leach fields. Now, imagine this. When a septic tank is failed and it has to be replaced, it is replaced with a biodigester that within it has so many internal corridors that when the biosolids come in, they are digested very thoroughly by microbes and a living ecology creates this methane that then is captured in a cap on the top of the septic tank and is sent into a tank in the house where it is then delivered to your stove and to a tankless insta-hot hot water heater. That's what we're running right here at the Center for Bioregional Living very successfully off of an experimental unit that we installed three years ago now. And I can tell you that it is both from my research on biogas and my personal development around it here as a technology on our campus. We are confident in saying that this is a scalable technology that will solve fecal coliform, E. coli, and pollution problems while at the same time creating an energy yield that solves our dependence on fossil fuels and things being trucked in in order for us to have hot water on tap and comfortable homes in the wintertime. We can literally be producing all the domestic hot water, cooking fuel, and heating energy that we need in a household with our septic tank being retrofitted by turning it into a biogas digester. Now, when we think about pollution problems in this country and we begin to realize that they don't need to continue to exist, they in fact are something that are entirely solvable by transitioning. As the old system fails, we will replace it with a ecological socially appropriate, meaning people-scale, renewable infrastructures, not industrial-scale renewable infrastructures. People-scale means that, in particular, we're not going to have mega-dams. We're not going to have mega-wind. We're not going to have mega-solar. We're not going to have mega-tidal power plants. We're going to have ones designed that are appropriate for the ecology, geology, and opportunities that exist in that landscape. And then we're going to import energy from outside communities, import foods that we can't produce locally. The concept that we are rolling out here is not one of isolationism and separatism. This is a concept of a regional economy that addresses the vulnerabilities that right now 
exist for all of our communities due to their utter and complete dependence upon fossil fuels and imported materials that they do not produce locally. Our food is largely not something that we are in control of or have the power to ensure the supply of due to the fact that we have to have trucks running, ships sailing, and a whole global network of transportation and energy that is working smoothly in order for us to have dinner on our tables at night, clothes on our back, and heat in our homes in the wintertime. And that is a vulnerable and unacceptable and unnecessary state of affairs. The goal for the next generation is to transform this industrial, fossil fuel, militarized world into a people-powered, ecological, healthy home. And creating this healthy home for all of us, for all species of all children through all time, is what emerges from walking out this concept of how do we become more locally self-reliant and what do we mean when we say local. And for that, we begin to get into this more intellectual concept of a watershed, but also empirical, practical. It's simply a geographic pattern that repeats, that gives us a template to design our infrastructures to make sense within. It gives us parameters to say, what is a good transportation infrastructure? How much rainfall happens here? What is the amount of sunlight that this particular place receives? And how can we use nutrient loads, sunlight, wind, water, and the movement of materials to power our homes, to create yields that give us the fuel loads we need, the foods that are vital, nutritious, and bountiful. These are all achievable goals that we are in the process at the Center for Bioregional Living of designing, articulating, and sharing with our surrounding community the pathways to creating real autonomy, and future resilience for our children to inherit and participate in. So thank you for listening today, and I hope these ideas are resonating and useful and rippling out on the pond into your communities. If you're looking for us to come and share some of these thoughts with your municipality or community group, please drop us a line and we'll make a visit over to your landscape and share some of these insights with people who are ready to move forward on creating a new model of economic development, a model that celebrates health and the true wealth of the people, which is in the health of the land, the health of future generations, and the health of the soil and the water that we all share. <laughs>